you know, I'm sure many people have said this to you that winners write history, but there's always the other side of the story. Yeah. And uh, you know what else happened? What um, what are the hidden truths behind any particular moment or uh, situation in history? I'm fascinated by that. I'm intrigued by that to know the whole story. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome to the show. We are already on episode seven of season six. I cannot believe that. We are having a little bit shorter season than we used to have, so um, we're about halfway through. And today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Patricia Raybon. She has been a journalist most of her life, but now she is writing mysteries about um, a black amateur sleuth in Colorado in the 1920s. So we're going to get right into that conversation because it's a little longer than usual. And I don't want to keep you here in the beginning listening to my voice when you can listen to me and Patricia talk about all kinds of ins and outs of what she's writing. So here's my conversation with Patricia Raybon. Patricia, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Your latest novel, Double the Lies, the second in your series about Detective Annalise Spain, released in February. Can you tell me about this book? Well, it is the second in a history mystery that is set in Colorado in the early 1920s when the Klan ruled the state. Mm-hmm. And the the first of the series features my um, young protagonist, who's a young black theologian who is also a fan of Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. And she is working in the uh, blustery sort of unforgiven city of Chicago when she gets a cryptic telegram to come home to Colorado and solve the murder of her estranged father. That's Mm. That's book one. Right. In book two, Double the Lies, she is raising the clock to solve the murder of a trick pilot or a barnstorming pilot before she gets framed by the Klan for the crime. Right. So she is, you know, it's interesting, Allison, she falls into that bucket that we call amateur sleuths, but she, um, in the course of solving that first mystery, leaves behind her life, her teaching life as a theologian, and starts to live and work as a detective. And people come to her for her help. So in book two, she is working as, as the city's newest detective to solve this crime of who killed this young white trick pilot before right. she before she gets framed for the crime. Right, because she happened to be there when his body was found. Right? I mean, that happens toward the beginning of the book, so I don't think that's a yes. spoiler. So in the first book, she decides to give up her teaching position at a university. Is that right? Yes, it's a small Bible college in Chicago. 
and I should say it's not moody. Okay. People ask me all the time, is, is that supposed to be moody, <laughs> moody Bible college? Um, is it a fictional um, Bible it, college or a real one? It's it's fictional. And yeah. um, my first job out of college actually was working uh, in Chicago oh, <laughs> and no. uh, at the... Um, United Methodist Publishing House, actually. I was sort of an, an assistant, assistant, assistant editor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, my degrees are in journalism. And so I, I spent uh, one winter in Chicago, and I'm sure that informed why <laughs> this, the story um, begins there. But yes, she left. Uh, Anna Lee has left her, resigned from her teaching position. But once she gets a cryptic telegram to come home to solve um, the murder of one year ago of her estranged father. So now in book two, in Double the Lies, she's uh, has had one sleuthing adventure under her belt, and she's on to another one. Yes. Um, so it's it's fascinating. Everything about this series was very unique. Um, the setting, the characters, the premise. What inspired you to write this, the series and this story in particular? Well, at least two, maybe three things. One, I love historical fiction, mm-hmm. and and I love history. Um, you know, I'm sure many people have said this to you that winners write history, but there's always the other side of the story. Yeah, and uh, you know what else happened? What um, what are the hidden truths behind any particular moment or uh, situation in history? I'm um, fascinated by that. I'm intrigued by that to know the whole story. And so I read history and historical fiction for that reason. But also, I love clergy mysteries. And so uh-huh. you're probably familiar with... Um, Father Brown, for example, the uh, G.K. Chesterton's uh, character whose stories have been dramatized on um, Masterpiece on PBS. Mm -hmm. And um, in the 80s and 90s, there was a a clergy mystery called the Rabbi Small Mysteries. I don't know if you're familiar with those. No, I'm not. The, The first, the titles were based on, each one was based on a day of the week. So it was Saturday, the rabbi is angry. Sunday, the rabbi, you know, (laughs) on and on like that. But when they were released, they were very, very popular. Hmm. But the other part of, and this is still part of an answer to your question. Right. um, I grew up in the black church in here in Colorado my dad mm-hmm. came out to Colorado with the Air Force. He he's he was a U.S. Army veteran, but he he had a, an accounting degree from one of the historically black colleges, and so he landed in Colorado at the U.S. Air Force Finance and Accounting Center. And uh, there were few places even then. I grew up under Jim Crow segregation and came yes. of age came of oh, age during during the uh, civil rights uh, movement. Wow. And there were very few places that, even in Colorado, that felt safe. And one of those was the mm-hmm. church. So I spent a lot of time um, 
every Sunday of my life in church and a lot of other days of the week in church. And um, I have remained um, over my lifetime fascinated by the mystery of faith and uh, in, in a sort of Father Brown way. Yeah. And so I, I knew that if um, at some point I ended up writing fiction after writing after my lifetime as a journalist, a newspaper mm-hmm. journalist. And I wanted it to have some sort of theological pivot point. Okay. And so that's another answer to your question. That makes sense. That's why she was a theologian and you have... Um, With questions. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, sure. And then, you know, her her love interest is the um, pastor. Yes. Then this particular book, though... Double the Lies, what gave you the idea for the the Barnstormer um, angle? Well, I had been reading histories of the first black female pilot, licensed pilot in the U.S. Her name was Bessie Coleman. Mm -hmm. And um, she had, after World War I, her her brother came home from the war and, and said, you know, in in France, there are women who fly airplanes. And so he he baited her and said, you could never do anything like that. So, of course, <laughs> so, of course, she was determined to get a pilot's license, but could not find anybody in the U.S. who mm-hmm. would teach a young black woman. Wow. And so she got a job in a nail salon, I think it was. But anyway, she saved her money, Allison, and took night courses in French. Oh. And then uh, went to France and was licensed to fly by, wow. the Fe- by the Federation Aeronautique International. And she came back to the U.S. and for a while was um, really a headliner barnstormer, you know, this young black woman flying mm-hmm. planes. And and so I was uh, compelled by her personality. And at one point I wanted, I planned for her to show up in the story. Mm-hmm. That's not what happened, but she still inspired my uh, interest in that whole barnstorming era. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was, that was the thing that got got the story started. That's so interesting. So now this Bessie Coleman, when when did she become a barnstormer? Was it around? She got her pilot's license in 1921. Okay, so, so around the same time as your your novel, yeah, yeah, a little bit, a few few years before this particular story, which takes place in 1924, right? But. Um, she was known all over the country, and there's even a U.S. postage stamp um, mm. with, named in her honor. So, and a lot of children's books about her life oh, because you know she was so unusual. And yeah, and listen to this, Allison Mattel. You know, Mattel has that a series of dolls. There are these sort of heritage dolls, and one of them is a Bessie Coleman doll. Oh, really? I did not know that. That's cool. Yes. So that's, a, you know, that's another thing I love about history. And people say, oh, I didn't know that. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. 
I learned some so much from interviewing authors for this show that, you know, there's no way that you can know all the different facets of history. Right. <laughs> and so it's just amazing to learn from different people who focused on various parts of it. Yes. And this is, I think it's fascinating that this, your book happens almost a hundred years ago. Um, yes. And in a world that I really had not been exposed to very much, at least. I mean, you hear about things. So the Klan was actually very active in Colorado at that time. Is that right? Colorado had the second highest Klan membership per oh capita. Wow. Of any state in the nation. India, uh, Indiana had the first. That is tragic and upsetting for me because you mentioned, I think it was in your author's note, you mentioned something about Estes Park. Mm-hmm. And I, I have been, I've spent some time in Colorado. So Estes Park has, holds some very special memories for me. And I was so sad to hear that there's such a tragic history there too. That, yes. And, and speaking of Estes Park, I didn't mention this in my author's note, but its founder, who I think his first name was John, um, last name Estes, but when he came to that part of the Rocky Mountains, he brought with him at least one or two enslaved people. Mm. Um, That was, of course, before this second iteration of the Klan in the 1920s, but Colorado, from the um, leaders from the governor on down, were dues-paying members of Mm. the Klan. Wow. The leader of the Klan was a kind of a showman. His name was John Galen Locke, looking for an opportunity, a money-making opportunity. And he was invited by um, Klan officials in the South to come to Colorado and set up the Klan. And he arrived at a time when there already was among white Protestants a fear about immigrants and Jews Mm, mm -hmm. and blacks and Catholics. And John Galen Locke um, struck that match and it just took off like wildfire. And everywhere in Colorado, um, the uh, passion for the Klan just flared up almost overnight. Everybody, people saw it as a uh, patriotic expression of Americanism. And these other people who were immigrants or blacks or Catholics or Jewish as um, not un-American. Wow. And so people joined the Klan, businesses uh, put notices on their store windows indicating that they were Klan members and and um, and newspapers all over the state. That was, of course, the era of newspaper journalism. And mm-hmm. every, every little hamlet had a newspaper. And the Klan had a weekly newspaper published in Boulder, Colorado, which is these days considered a progressive university town. Mm-hmm. The message was in papers all over the state were very pro Ku Klux Klan. A common entertainment were minstrel shows, blackface minstrel shows, mm. you know, the Lions Club, churches, schools. For my research, I 
I fell in love with the uh, a site called the Colorado Historic Newspapers dot com plus the Denver Public Library's um, Western History Collection and the oral histories that um, it made of people involved in that era. And so people say that the Klan poisoned the atmosphere in Colorado, but the the air was our the the social atmosphere was already toxic. Mm, yeah. And the Klan just took advantage of that and it really took off. Right. That's of course so it sad. makes it makes for uh, a compelling background, you know, for <laughs> historical mystery. You need a you need a threat. Yes. And the, so that these the mysteries are not about the Klan. They are about people impacted because and by the Klan. Right. And um, and so, since I, you know, I was I'm been interested to learn about that era. I decided to set the mystery during that time, and I like the the time and the way it looks historically. Yes, yeah, sure. In stories, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I I understand that one of your goals in writing these books is to help Christians become cross culturally conversant. And aware, can you expand on that? Yes, thank you for the question. Yeah, because my experience is that um, a lot of um, my Christ- Christians friends who are white who don't have to be racially aware, <laughs> mm. um, not because they're not compassionate or um, interested or concerned, but who just don't have to be to right. live live one's life, not in the way that. You know, in my case, my family, um, it was imperative for us to be racially aware all the time for safety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we not only have that, you know, racial awareness and sensitivity, but are able to talk about racial matters with an element of um, comfort Mm-hmm. that I often don't find a, among, when I go to book clubs, for example, in an all-white setting, I encounter people who have are uncomfortable mm-hmm. talking about uh, issues of race. And of course, now we're in this season where there's pushback against teaching uh, black history and other race-related mm-hmm. histories, and books are being banned, and um, that are related to Black history, and and so I want to change that that narrative, and and normalize conversation about matters of race. Right. It's it's it is the origin story for our country, and we should be able to talk about it and be interested in it. And yeah, uh, it's amazing that uh, people, you know, in our case in the U- in the U.S. It's amazing to me that um, people who endured the the brutality and the the in, inhumanity of mm-hmm. enslavement five minutes later came out of enslavement ready to start their lives and you know mm-hmm. <laughs> build businesses and find find ways to get educated and right and uh, so there's there is a resilience. That I have always observed and experienced among in the African American world, 
mm-hmm. that um, that I want people to other people to appreciate and know about and want to talk about and learn about. Right. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you feel like it's gotten more difficult to have that conversation about race? Yes. Yeah. In the, in the pa- politically, in the past, uh, you know, since 2016, <laughs> politically, yes, the the um, emphasis, and sadly, in white Christian um, networks and churches mm-hmm. and neighborhoods, uh, there has been this push to neutralize uh, the race conversation and and claim that well racism is in the past and uh, black lives don't matter and you know all of those negatives mm-hmm. and um, and so I think it's made people very uncomfortable very recently in fact I, I was invited to do an article an essay for a Christian magazine and I offered they asked for a pitch and I made my pitch and it had a race angle Mm-hmm. And the editor said, you know, at this time, we just, we can't use that right now. Mm-hmm. And so that's a sad thing for a community of people who claim to be informed by the love of Christ. Right. And not only the love of Christ, but the courage of Christ. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, t- moments like that where, for me, I see that as an invitation to lean in to the conversation and to the discussion. Right. And, good. Uh, and, and even write a mystery, a mystery series. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me, Allison, um, that I write at the intersection of race and faith. And I've observed that people who might not want to read a devotional or an article that I've written on those in that area of race and faith may read an entire mystery novel mm-hmm. <laughs> that centers on a young black woman and her struggle in right. a race in a racist world. So I'm um, enjoying this historical fiction journey, even though. Um, I'm new to fiction. I've spent five decades writing as a journalist, a newspaper wow. journalist, or teaching journalism. I taught for um, 15 years at the University of Colorado oh, wow. at School of Journalism in Boulder. Um, and now it's called something else, mass media, something, something. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I'm. I've always loved fiction, and and so I'm really delighted to be uh, adventuring yeah. in the fi- fiction world and in the mystery genre in particular. Right. Let's talk a little bit about that because this is only your second novel, right? right. Um, well, I just finished the third in this series. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll talk about that in a minute. But you. Before this, you mentioned you were you started in journalism or mm-hmm. in, or in teaching yes. journalism, um, and you wrote a lot of nonfiction. So, is it mostly faith based books and articles, or what? Tell me about how your career has gone since you left school. It came out of journalism school. I'm I'm a graduate of 
the Ohio State University. <laughs> that's mm. that's what they call themselves now. Yeah. And then I have a bachelor's at, from Ohio State and a master's in journalism from University of Colorado. Mm-hmm. And I worked for a dozen years in newspaper journalism in Denver at, at the Denver Post and also at uh, the old Scripps Howard newspaper here in Denver, um, I, the Rocky Mountain News. I was a feature. Well, I was. I started in the at, in the um, si- on the city desk in the newsroom, and then one day, there was an announcement on the bulletin board for an opening in the features department. Oh, and um, I looked at that announcement. You know, the saying that little hinges open big doors. Mm-hmm. But I put my name in, and I literally, I got the position, and I literally went upstairs and um, changed from writing about facts to writing about feelings. Mm-hmm. Because I was in the features department, and, and we were encouraged to write these long uh, page one Sunday articles on right. issues and people fascinating people and their journeys and and so it was uh it changed my the trajectory of my writing life wow interesting and and i i know i didn't know it at the time but because of those years i spent as a feature writer and then um teaching feature writing and newspaper writing in at the university for for a long time. My last newspaper job was editing the Sunday feature magazine hmm. that was published at the time at the Denver Post. And all of that um, that writing that gives permission to reflect and explore has led to me now writing fiction. Mm-hmm. I, I I can see it now. I didn't know it at the time. Right. That's in a nutshell, that's the story. Wow, that's so interesting. Um and so your first your first novel, Mm -hmm. All All That Is Secret, won a Christie Award. So that must have been kind of amazing to go from you know, (laughs) writing nonfiction and and then your first novel wins. Um was it best first I forget what the award was. Best first novel. Best first novel. Um the the first that was such a surprise i keep thinking <laughs> are they sure they <laughs> <laughs> um because i i'm aware that i'm new to this you know i was reading a novel recently by an author whose name is geraldine brooks mm. and she's written a book called horse mm-hmm. and it's about the um the first horse um racing winner okay and at the time when the, um, all of the jockeys in the U.S. were were African American, and uh, but at any rate, you know she's this woman has won all sorts of prizes for her fiction. I and um, and yeah. so when I re- read these accomplished novelists who've been mm-hmm. at the game for years and years, I I just feel like a, a newcomer. So I was very humbled by that acknowledgement by the um, Christie Awards. Yeah, were you there? Were you at the? 
Yes. Ceremony. Oh, great. That's fun. Yes. I went, <laughs> it was in Nashville. I went mm-hmm. and my, my husband went with me and we were sitting there at the table with our, my edits, editors from Tyndale House, t- the publisher of Tyndale Fiction, Karen Watson, and um, my editor, my um, line editor and others and some other authors. Right. And, and so what they do is read the nominees and then they read the first lines of the winning novel. Mm-hmm. And when I heard the first lines of my novel, I just cry, I burst into tears. I just <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. And and then I looked yeah. at my husband and he was crying. Oh. <laughs> Cuz we've just been, you know, I've been on the writing journey for a long long time. And I just never imagined that Yeah. somebody else would say, "Oh, yeah, we think there's something here that deserves an acknowledgement." Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, um, can you tell us anything about the next book or is it top secret for now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's finished. (laughs) Oh, good. And, uh, it's, um, all the, it's been through all the editing passes and it is scheduled to be released in June of, uh, 2024 next year. Okay. And, uh, it's another Annalise Spain mystery. Mm hmm. And, with with each story, I feel more comfortable. It's, I said to my editor, it's interesting to learn f- about fiction while you are writing fiction. I never imagined, you know, the, the my agent, I asked my agent, in fact, I said, you know, I'm, I have this mystery novel. Would, would you represent this? And he liked it right away and it sold fast. And then Tyndale came back and said, could you turn it into a series? Mm. So, um, I, I encountered some snobbery, some uh, not much, but some people were saying, "What are you? You're writing fiction? You know, why are you writing fiction?" <laughs> Was <laughs> but, that from um, from the journalism world? That you some from about? yeah, some from the journalism world and and from the faith world. I mm, had a, a really saying, "Why are you writing mystery novel?" But, you know, mm. because I I also write devotionals. I'm um, yes. A regular contributor at Our Daily Bread. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a global devotional ministry. Yes. And um, so, um, I, but as I, the more I read about fiction, I like what Robert McKee says. He he's written this doorstopper of a book called Story. Mm. And he says that um, he's a film doctor, and he says. We come to fiction not to escape life, but to find life. Mm, yeah. And so I love the takeaways. Uh, stories offer takeaways. Jesus told parables. And so I, I feel that I'm in that um, storytelling tradition, that the mysteries that I'm working on are in that storytelling tradition. And I also hope, uh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> But I hope to try some a sta- some standalone novel, historical novels too. Oh, great! I won't tell anyone; just all my <laughs> listeners. <you know. laughs> right. Um, and that that leads right very well into my 
my question, a question I ask all my guests. Mm -hmm. How do you think learning about history through stories helps, helps us approach life in the present? Great question. Well, you were kind of answering it before I asked it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it shows us how things don't change. Mm -hmm. And um, it, um, I was amazed when I started listening to the oral histories available through the Denver Public Library's uh, digital collections. I was amazed how I, I had expected these tapes to sound, you know, scratchy and Mm. old, old fashioned. I guess I'll say it that way, but I was amazed how the people who were um, whose stories were preserved in these oral histories sound just like us. Mm-hmm. They have the same concerns, they um, the same disappointments, the same frustrations. They want democracy to survive, and um, they're frustrated by politicians who, yeah, uh, you know, don't do what they say they're going to do. All the same, the same human concerns right and um and so we when we go back and and read those stories and whether or not they are true history or historical fiction we find ourselves and they offer us um the uh, an invitation to reflect on what we're doing now and how uh, you know are we better are we better at this have we learned new things are we smarter more responsible, more accountable, more. So they allow us to ask questions about what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. And I hope some things have changed since, you know, the period that you're writing about. Yes, some things have changed. You know, I I remember, uh, as I said, based on when I grew up, I remember the Segregated water fountains. I remember right. traveling with with my parents. We couldn't stay in a hotel. The, oh the signs out front said whites, whites only. We couldn't eat in a in the restaurants. Um, mm. You could at, there was there was often literally a hole in the wall in the back of a building where you could get a sack of food. Uh, if that wow. Um, in I, my mother's from North Carolina, we go down to Wilmington area and the beaches were segregated, you know, whites only, whites mm-hmm. only beach. And so the laws that allow that are no longer on, on the books. Right. Um, so there is progression in that way, mm-hmm. but you know, bigotry dies hard and mm-hmm. people live in their silos and, um, and, you know, sh- don't show love to mm-hmm. everybody. That's still a, that's still a problem. Right. Sure. So, so there are things still that, many things still that we can work on and be better at. Right, right, of course. Well, Patricia, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Oh, well, like everybody, I'm on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and some of the others. But the best way to keep up with me is to 
sign up for my reader's circle. Mm. And you, that's um, an easy thing to do on my website, which is patriciaraybon.com. And I send out a monthly-ish newsletter with updates and photos and of places I've been and people I've talked to and uh, what I'm doing and where by grace I'm trying to go. So mm-hmm. that's that's really the best way. Right. Yeah. Join sure. that join that reader circle. And there's a free prayer download that's available to all that who join and it's called The Busy Person's Guide to Hearing God. Oh great. And so yeah. that's available if you sign up for the for the reader circle. I mm-hmm. hope people will. And yeah. I hope they'll look for these mystery novels. I I'm, I'm loving writing them and yeah. I I believe people will really enjoy them. Yeah, I will definitely link to them in the show notes and to your website as well. So people will be able to find them. Okay. So great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm honored to have been your guest. Well, friends, wasn't Patricia just lovely? I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And let me encourage you once again to visit the show notes, which you can find either in your podcast listening app or on my website at alisontreat.com slash blog. That is where all the podcast episodes live, along with the show notes and the many helpful links that you will find in those show notes. I will link to Patricia's books and her website and her social media accounts, as well as some of the things that we talked about today. Also, I will link to a sign up for my newsletter. So if you want to help the show, there are a few ways you can do that. And one of them is by signing up for my newsletter. And that is where I share monthly about um, any publishing news I have, any research that I'm doing on history, which obviously you guys are interested in history. So you might find that research interesting as well. And also I share about books that I'm reading, which many times include historical fiction. And I know you guys love historical fiction. That's why you're here. Okay, all joking aside, another way that you can help the show is by either subscribing or following the show and leaving a review that really helps other people who are interested to find historical fiction unpacked. So make sure you do that before you navigate away to go on with your day or to do um, listen to the next great audiobook that you have on tap. I really, really appreciate every review and every follow or subscribe and just all the interaction with listeners to this show. So thank you so much. And now I'm going to leave you with a quote that I thought was appropriate. This comes from Thurgood Marshall. He said, in recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. So let's recognize the humanity of all our fellow beings and keep reading historical fiction, my friends. I will talk to you again next week. <music>